Hi, I'm Courtney Brown at Emory University. Welcome to my class in science fiction and politics. Lee Smolin's book, The Trouble with Physics. Now, many of you probably wondered why in the world are we reading a book about physics in a course called Science Fiction and Politics. Well, as I was mentioning to you last time, we look at science fiction in order to get a new perspective on ideas. There are lots of things that scientists, social scientists, physical scientists, natural scientists can think of that cannot be tolerated, just thoughts that cannot be tolerated <clears throat> tolerated by their peers. And you have to see it to believe it. But in science fiction, such thoughts are tolerated. Most science fiction writers make a very clear attempt to connect that which may be possible with the stories. They go beyond what was currently accepted, but they push our boundaries to what is conceivable. So a lot of people scoff at science fiction, but a lot of other people look at science fiction to find out what's coming, what's going to be happening, what's going to be changing. So let's just take a look at this. Now, this book essentially has two parts. It's <coughs> officially got four parts, but the big two parts of it is first when he talks about the science itself, the troubles with the way physicists look at reality, how the scientists are looking at reality, and then the second part which really is part four which is learning from experience, which is the sociology of science. Now, from high school, you come here saying, well, look, I've always gone to my teachers and assumed that I'm going to get some information and then move on. But one of the things that they don't teach well in high school is the exact same thing that they don't teach well in the college university levels. And that is controversy, dissenting opinions. There is a desire in academia, and by that I mean not just the university system, but going all the way through the high school and primary system, to give information to you as if it's all settled, and all you need to do is learn it, as if all the struggles are finished, are over. And then you come and you just learn this stuff and proceed. And then what is your goal in life if you are taught that way? If all of the troubles of science, if all of the controversies, of all of the real intellectual angst is not presented to you, but just theories, thoughts, ideas, facts given to you, what would be the only thing you'd have left to do? If science is, is, is exposed to you, and what, but I mean social science as well as regular science, what would be, just think about that. What, I'm, I'm asking you and I'm hoping you respond. What would be the only thing left for you to do? Die. Hmm? 
Die? Well, before dying. Now, I'm also remember this is this course is is recorded, uh, so you have to speak up. Okay. But what else would you do now? I'm not talking about when you're 100 years old and dying. <clears throat> what would be left for you to do? Meaning, you have to do something in your life, like now. But science is presented to you as facts, known theories, controversies resolved, this is what we do. What's left for you to do when you get science exposed to you like that? If you aren't taught that there's somewhere to go with it, if you aren't taught that, there, that these are theories, these aren't all necessarily proven, that there are things that we need to learn, then there's not really, you're not going to study it, you're not going to change it, and you're just going to stick with what you have for your life. Now, that's a good point. If you're not going to change it, what are you personally going to do? Now, take yourself out of the classroom. You're by yourself, sitting on a bench outside on a nice sunny day. Forget everybody else. And you're thinking what we always have spent some time thinking. What am I going to do? Okay, now answer, add to that response. What are you going to do? with science presented to you as it is. Now, I'm not talking about what are you going to do with science. Just what are you going to do physically? Are you going to go jogging? Are you going to go over to the dock? Are you going to get a burger? That type of thing. Science is presented to you. What are you going to do then? Well, I'll avoid it. I'll stay away. I'll be honest. It's, if it, it sounds like you know, stagnant almost. Stagnant? So I'd rather make an attempt to find something else. What would, that's a good thing. So you'd avoid it. You'd look to find something else. Um, what would you be looking for in that something else? <clears throat> something fulfilling. Fulfillment. Feeling like I can accomplish something. Okay. Something fulfilling. Something that you say you could accomplish something. Let's be more raw. Translate the nice words into blunt, emotional, raw, crude words that you wouldn't want your mom and dad to sort of here in that way, meaning stuff that's not polished, words that are with an edge. We always make things sound nice, like something more fulfilling. Now let's put an edge on those words. What would you do? Try and find something useful for you to do. Something useful. Sounds like the Good Samaritan. Again, you're no, trying I to mean, help somebody else. Not, but something where be selfish is what I'm trying to ask. Actually All right, where it's a little better. Something where you well, someone will listen to you. All right, that's what you say. Where someone will listen to you, where your opinions actually matter. What else? Somewhere where there's still some glory to be had, some place you can make a name for yourself. Some glory to be had. Some place where you can make names for yourself. Now, that's interesting. What kind of emotions does that bring up? It's all right to have emotions like that. Pride. What's that? Pride. Pride. Excitement. What's that? Excitement. 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 Pride. What else? Hmm? 
<laughs> What's that? It's a thinking. Are you thinking? Just put some more words out there that would describe what you'd be looking for in a basic way, without the polish. Money. Money, all right. Power. Power. Along with that, a control, I guess. Sense of control. All right. What would all those feelings be driven by? What's behind those feelings? Greed. Greed. What's behind that? Why would someone want to, if someone's greedy, hoard something? It's a survival instinct. Survival. Okay. But is that why? Is that what you would think immediately in terms of what you would want to do <clears throat> sitting on that bench? Are you thinking survival when you're looking at career options? Success. What's that? Think success. Success. But why? Success for what? What's even more basic and primitive than that? Pleasure. Pleasure. And perhaps I could translate pleasure to fun. You already said excitement. Having fun. Some people said power, glory. What you're not taught in school is the the visceral lust for the fight that scientists actually go through. What you are taught is that science has discovered these things and this is what we have. You may learn it. What the hell is good about that? That's like really stupid. No one wants to say this is all you can give the teacher is applause. Yay! They did it. Wonderful. <clears throat> do you want to know who won the football game or do you want to watch the football game? If it was good enough just to know who won, there would be no football that people would go to see. There would be no basketball that people would go to see. You want to see the fight. You want to see the battle. You want to see the struggle. Why is it fun to watch a sporting event? Because it's not yet determined. You don't know who's going to win. And you look at the people that are on the field, and you look at the angst on their faces, the tears, the struggle, the fight, the fight, the fight. Trust me, scientists fight, and if they were legally allowed, it would be to the death to win a Nobel Prize. Blood would mean nothing to them if it was legally allowed. Assassinating one's opponents would be perfectly okay if it was legally allowed. They fight to the death, meaning there are controversies, and controversies, and controversies, and essentially nothing is settled. And none of those controversies are presented to you students. You don't even find out about them until graduate school when you're doing a dissertation project. And your advisor finally says, I want you to resolve this puzzle. And that'll be your dissertation. Then you say, I have a puzzle to resolve? A real one? One that's like not settled? Do you understand why there's so few people going into science 
in the United States? Who the hell would go into a field in which it was dead boring? You're not told about the controversies. Well, what kind of controversies are we talking about? Huge controversies. Huge, huge, huge controversies, even in the basic meaning of existence. None of the basic stuff has been worked out. None of the basic stuff has been worked out to the point where there's no controversy. Let's look at some of the things that are just basic. You're all sitting around here with uh, your notebooks on a table. So you'd say at least we've got the basic idea there we are sitting in a university room and it's solid and we're this is our existence. And at least we know that as much to say as we're sitting at a table and this table is solid we're going to learn something about. This table isn't solid. There's nothing solid about it. Scientists have never found anything solid. They've never found a single piece of mass. Well, you can say, what is this table? Well, the table is mostly empty space. Well, okay, it's made up of atoms. At least they're solid. Well, when you start breaking atoms apart, you start getting protons and neutrons, and then start breaking those things apart. You start getting things like quarks. Ultimately, you start getting sources, little things that are point masses, meaning infinitesimally small. Physicists have never, ever found a billiard ball solid thing. They've never found a single thing that was like a billiard ball. Like the old model of the atoms, they've never found a particle that was solid like a rock that you couldn't break up. You just keep breaking things up and breaking things up. Then you say, well, why can't my hand then pass through this table? Well, fields resist displacement. Let's repeat that phrase. Fields resist displacement as well. Fields resist displacement. Fields. Essentially, the only thing we've ever found in matter are fields. We've never actually found matter. Solid, rock-like, billiard ball things. There are a few physicists called particleists who are still studying and hoping to find a solid, rock-like, billiard ball type particle. Most physicists have given up that thing. Even though the standard model is based, the standard model that Lee Smolin talks about, is based on the idea of particles, particle physics. You can say, but wait a second. I have a relative who had a cancer and they shot radiation at the cancer. They shot it like bullets. And the things hit the cancer and killed the cancer. What is it they were shooting if it wasn't solid mass? That's a good question. We don't really know. Fields resist displacement. You can shoot a field, we know that. We don't exactly know what mass actually is. None of those controversies were ever exposed to when you were in high school, I'm sure. I'm sure you were told that force equals mass times acceleration. I'm sure you were told the basic laws of physics. I'm sure you were not told that the laws of physics are nowhere near accepted as laws by real physicists. Oh, some physicists will say, these are the laws I agree, I, I, that I, I agree with, but other physicists will come along and say, no, something's wrong with those laws. And so you'll get controversy. The point is not that you can't find someone who will say, there are laws. 
The point is that you can find others who will say those laws are incorrect. For the longest time, it was Newtonian physics that was considered correct. Force equals mass times acceleration is the basis of all Newtonian physics. From that, you can get equations for distance, time, anything you want that's in classical Newtonian physics can be gotten from force equals mass times acceleration. In quantum mechanics, essentially, the equivalent to Newtonian's force equals mass times acceleration is the Schrodinger equation. The probabilistic understanding of matter. And then, of course, there's Einstein's revolution that said Newton was sort of correct, but not really. It was just sort of a special case, low velocity type of a situation, and you have Einstein's special and general theory of relativity. But then there are other problems that we have come across that throw into question even Einstein's special and general theory of relativity. Things just don't really make sense. And there's a lot of things that are being argued about. So what we have here is a discussion about how physics as an example discipline, and the social sciences are exactly the same, of how they handle their controversy. And what you should be getting from here is the reason we want to look at science fiction, because you can't get the real picture of what science is like, including social science, from the scientists. Every scientist will be exposing you to their view of accepted reality. And every scientist will be, or most scientists, will be protecting you from the controversy that they fight behind the scenes once you're no longer in sight. So what you want to know is every time you take a class at the university, they're hiding something from you. They're hiding the battles that are taking place behind the scenes. You don't want the facts. You want the lust for the battle. You want to know where it's all being fought out. That's where the excitement is. And if you knew that, there would be no ambiguity about what fields you'd want to go into. Science is a battlefield. It's not an established terrain. It's a battlefield. It's where the excitement is. Why they keep it from undergraduates and high school students beats me. But it's death incarnate in terms of educating people. But science fiction is where you can get these new ideas because there are many scientists who put these new ideas into science fiction first. Okay, so let's let's read a few passages here. Go ahead. Ideas to why they don't. You tell me. Like to talk about the battles, because if you talk about the battles, then people will ask questions they can't answer, and Mm. teachers in high school, college, people in in positions of power Mm -hmm. like to keep their power, which is understandable. But because they like to keep their power, they don't want anyone threatening it, even just by asking them something that they can't explain to them. So it's a lot easier to keep people in the dark and say, here's what I have for you, isn't it fantastic, than say, well, you know, there are some questions. People don't like a discussion. People like to be sure or show to other people that they're sure. You know, that reminds me of a film producer that had a conversation with me one time 
who did a film that was aired on public television about digging in uh, in the soil. The way archaeologists, anthropologists, other scientists who dig in the soil to find out what happened in the past. There are special spots that are called windows. That's because if you dig in the soil, you find a lot of stuff from past eras. So in Africa, they have some special places in Ethiopia and Kenya that are good windows. The more you dig, the more bones you find, the more things you find. Well, this and this film producer did this film about one of these digs, and they came across a tool, a metal tool, that was in an undisturbed layer of sediment that had bones and other things telling the time period. And it was at a time, a long time ago, that predated the pyramids, the works, when metal working was like a hammer, a nicely formed hammer, where that type of stuff should not have existed and could not have existed from the perspective of mainstream science. And the film went into discussing how the sediment was undisturbed. There was no evidence that this deeply buried place that had been dug up and been changed in any way, all the other sediments right next to it, just feet around, you know, yards around, was uh, all showing the appropriate stuff. Nothing in the sedimentary layers were changed. There was this hammer. And he went through some other artifactual evidence that seemed to suggest that the history of humanity was much different than what we have currently expected. That there are things that were being discovered in these windows, these dig windows, that were not conforming to known theories, to known understandings. And then he gave a talk at a university, and one of the professors came up to him and said, I saw your, your show, and a number of my students saw your show also, and it was very disturbing. And I, would, I deeply regret the show, the show, the show aired. And the film producer said, well, why? What was the problem? And he said, well, after my students saw your show, they came into my class and they asked questions. That was the end of the conversation. And the film producer didn't know what to say. He said, but, but, but they asked questions? Yeah, you see, the idea was he was teaching an orthodoxy. And then they asked questions like, could this be all bogus? Now remember, orthodoxies are very profound and they're deeply embedded in our thinking. Remember, just as of last semester, the orthodoxy that you would have gotten in most economics departments, last semester, the semester before that, the semester before that, would have been telling you about the wonders of derivatives. And some of you are going into the business school or economics courses. You would have heard about macroeconomics, the computer programmings, predicting the computer programs that predict how the economy is going. They would have showed you the orthodoxy of how this all works. And it's only this semester that we've realized that whole ball of wax that has been taught for many years was bogus. It didn't work. The sudden collapse of our economy was based on the idea that those things were just wrong. 
and that there were competing theories which you were not exposed to that would have explained how tenuous our economic stability was. Asking questions, that's exactly right. Asking questions. Okay, let's actually talk about what Lee Smolin does. Lee Smolin is a physicist, classically trained, but he has had a very interesting experience of being first a string theorist and then expanding his perspective to include some other theories. Now, let's actually just read a little bit from the beginning of his book, and then we're going to go, we're going to spend much of our time, especially next period, we're going to talk about Lee Smolin's book this period and next period, um, in part four, which is the second real major part of the book, but it is official part four. Let's look at the very beginning. This is, uh, pardon me, this would be on page three, chapter one. From the beginning of physics. Let's read a little bit and discuss. There have been those who imagined they would be the last generation to face the unknown. Physics has always seemed to its practitioners to be almost complete. This complacency is shattered only during revolutions when honest people are forced to admit that they don't know the basics. But even revolutionaries still imagine that the big idea, the one that will tie it all up and end the search for knowledge, lies just around the corner. We live in one of those revolutionary periods and have for a century. The last such period was the Copernican Revolution beginning in the early 16th century, during which the Aristotelian theories of space, time, motion, and cosmology were overthrown. The culmination of that revolution was Isaac Newton's proposal of a new theory of physics published in his uh, the, the um, Principia Mathematica, the English version of that, in 1687. The current revolution in physics began in 1900 with Max Planck's discovery of a formula describing the energy distribution in the spectrum of heat radiation, which demonstrated that the energy is not continuous but quantized. Did everyone understand that? Before that, they thought of light as a continuous thing. And Max Planck was the one who said, actually, it's behaving more like pieces, bits and pieces, quantized. Well, this revolution has yet to end. The problems that physicists must solve today are, to a large extent, questions that remain unanswered because of the incompleteness of the 20th century's scientific revolution. The core of our failure to complete the present scientific revolution consists of five problems, each famously intractable. These problems confronted us when I began my study of physics in the 1970s, and while we have learned a lot about them in the last three decades, they remain unsolved. One way or another, any proposed theory of fundamental physics must solve these five problems. So it's worth taking a closer look at each. Well, Smolin then goes into Einstein. Many people say Einstein solved all of the big problems. He revolutionized Newtonian thinking, and in so doing, he fixed all the problems, seemingly all the problems, that we were confronting that Newton left us that we didn't quite understand. 
What are some of the things that Einstein fixed? Um, he explained, I believe it was black body radiation, and he also explained uh, a time gap and an energy release. So he explained the quantized energy packets with photons and things like that. That was one of his uh, first discoveries back in 1905. The... Uh, Discovery of the photoelectric effect. What you're talking about? What, he, what's, what, what he's talking about is the photoelectric effect, and that had to deal with when you shine light on a certain type of metal, um, radiation comes off, electricity comes off. You get you get a, a strange type of uh, uh, electrical phenomenon that is odd because it doesn't really depend on the amount of light you're shining on it. It's not the strength of the light. It's not like you make it brighter. Rather, it depends on the frequency, which was a, a strange a strange thing. And Einstein was able to explain this. That was a huge... Of his, of his many discoveries, which he published and won so many awards for back in 1905 when he was a clerk in the patent office, that was one of the uh, the real biggies. The ones that he is well known for, of course, is special in general relativity, but he didn't win a Nobel Prize for those. It was the things that are smaller that people first recognized. Well, that's true, he did that. But what else did he do that revolutionized Newtonian physics? Go ahead. He uh, unified a gravity with an um, acceleration, which kind of brought a new perspective of how how the world works in terms of like space and time and if we're in constant motion or stuff like that, I think. <laughs> yeah, he changed the way we thought of Newtonian acceleration. Right. What the, what specifically did he, did he do with that concept of motion? What specifically did he say about motion? That it was relative to the observer. That it was relative to the observer. Yeah, that's exactly right. His special theory of relativity is different from his general. His general theory of relativity is fundamentally a theory of gravity. But his special theory of relativity dealt with the relativity of perspective, the relativity of the observer, and how space-time is not absolute. But what we have is not absolute space, but that we simply move around in. But that the background that we have space and time is actually relative to the observer. So in other theories, we have what Lee Smolin calls theories that are background independent or background dependent. That distinction between background dependent and background independent is huge with regard to Lee Smolin's ideas. Some ideas depend on the background. Other ideas are background independent, meaning they incorporate the background in their ideas. And Einstein's ideas is one of those ideas that included the background. Some theories, which are background dependent, say the background must stay the way it is in order for this theory to work. Well, then you question, well, then what causes the background? Einstein's theory was not one that depended on the background. 
but incorporated the background with it, explained it, that the fabric of time and space that we live in is actually part of the whole thing. And so all of it can change. Nothing's fixed within it. Was Einstein perfect? Very rarely do you find real discussions about possible flaws in Einstein's theory. Let's talk about what Lee Smolin talks about with Einstein. Let's read a couple more paragraphs. Albert Einstein was certainly the most important physicist of the 20th century. Perhaps his greatest work, this is on page 4, was his discovery of general relativity, which is the best theory we have so far of space, time, motion, and gravitation. His profound insight was that gravity and motion are in and intimately related to each other and to the geometry of space and time. This idea broke with hundreds of years of thinking about the nature of space and time, which until then had been viewed as fixed and absolute. Being eternal and unchanging, they provided a background, which we use to define motions like position and energy. You see, the background was fixed. So your other theories could, could sit within that background. That was Newtonian stuff. In Einstein's general theory of relativity, space and time no longer provided a fixed, absolute background. Space is as dynamic as matter. It moves and morphs. As a result, the whole universe can expand or shrink. And time can even begin in a Big Bang and end in a black hole. Einstein accomplished something else as well. He was the first person to understand the need for a new theory of matter and radiation. Actually, the need for a break was implicit in Planck's formula, but Planck had not understood its implications deeply enough. He felt that it could be reconciled with Newtonian physics. Einstein thought otherwise, and he gave the first definitive argument for such a theory in 1905. It took 20 more years to invent the theory known as quantum theory. Now... Lee Smolin really likes Einstein. And he, in his work, is trying to bring Einstein back into an understanding of quantum mechanics. His ideas of gravity, which have been really a difficult challenge for string theorists to work with, is something that Einstein, that Lee Smolin wants to bring back into the understanding of the quantum world, a, a micro-quantum theory of gravity, one of those forces that affects the small as well as the large. So that's what he's sort of thinking. So he's coming from the perspective that Einstein is generally right. So let's say something now that Lee Smolin might find troublesome, something that might challenge our current understanding of Einstein. What do we know about Einstein's theory, his special theory of relativity? And I raise this not because I'm trying to challenge Lee Smolin at all. In fact, I'm really siding with him. I'm just raising this to show you that there is almost nothing that we can think about that we can't challenge. What does Einstein's special theory of relativity say with respect to time? It's the old thing. Everybody knows it from high school. What happens with velocity and time. Well, what happens if I stick one of you into a rocket 
and shoot you off and you go real fast and then you come back to Earth. What will happen with respect to time? Time slows down as you move more quickly. Time slows down as you move more quickly. So let's say you were the one in the rocket. We push the button, off you go, and you come back. We compare my watch to your watch. Whose watch will be slower? You were the one that zoomed off in the rocket. Yes, it'd be Yeah, your watch would be slower. So as you go faster, the clock speeds, the clock slows down relative to the person who's, at, who's, 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 who's still. And you say, well, this sounds pretty, uh, no one's really challenging that, really. Has it been demonstrated? In fact, it has been demonstrated. They have checked atomic clocks that were sent up in spaceships. They also know that atomic particles that decay at a certain rate, meaning they fall apart and obliterate at a certain rate. But when they're going very fast, they last longer, meaning they slow down their decay rate. So the field of special relativity seems pretty pretty locked in. Looks like Einstein got it right. Can we at least settle on that? Well, that's what the physicists would like you to believe. It's experimentally demonstrated. And it has been experimentally demonstrated. But just think about it. What did Einstein say with his special theory of relativity? He said that there is no fixed perspective. There is no fixed position. Everything is relative. Right? That was the basis of everything. So you jumped into the rocket ship and zoomed off. But like, if there's no fixed perspective, it just means that relative to something else, there's motion. Well, you in the rocket ship, you were looking out. As far as you're, as far as you're concerned, you were in the rocket ship, right? And you looked out the window. And what did you see happen to the planet Earth? Planet Earth zoomed away as far as you were concerned. From your perspective, it was me who zoomed away. You were just minding your own business in the rocket ship. You, zoomed, you know, Earth zoomed away. And from your perspective, when you landed on Earth, what should have happened? Whose clock, from your perspective, who rode in the rocket ship, according to the basic basic principle of special relativity, whose clock should have been slower? Yes. Should have been my clock was slower. Because there is no fixed position in Einstein's relativity theory. Well, Einstein knew about this problem, and so he said, "What do you? how do you solve it? I mean, like... This is a problem. Whose position? It doesn't matter. There is no fixed position. So relative to what? And he said, well, it depends on history. It depends on who started the rocket engines and flew away. I mean, history knows, you know, who did it. But now just think about that. What has he just done by saying it depends on who started the rocket engine? What? Pardon me? He limited the perspective. He limited perspective. Actually, what he did, let's put those in another words. He fixed a perspective. He said there's an absolute perspective. The absolute perspective is the one who didn't switch on the rocket engines. That's the one he wanted to believe. The reality is, there should be, according to Einstein's special theory of relativity, two versions of what happened. There should be a version, a version where... You come back and we check clocks. And indeed, my clock is faster than your clock. 
And there should be another version of the exact same thing where we come back and your clock is faster than my clock. Einstein was not willing to go there. What would that have assumed? He had troubles with quantum mechanics. He had big problems with what we're about to talk about. What does that assume? There would have been two versions of what? What? Of the events, yes. Exactly. Parallel universe, there would have been two versions of reality. That means anything that's moving would have a relative difference with anything else. And as long as there's anything moving in the universe, anything moving in the universe, there's going to be versions that are going to be different. It means it's a can of worms that's way, way bigger than any Pandora's box that's ever been opened. It means you start talking about relative movement, you really start talking about an infinite number of versions of everything. Because everything's got to be relative to everything else. Einstein was not willing to go there. That was way beyond what Einstein was willing to accept. He was not willing to accept even one of his children of theory, which was, he was the one who basically started quantum mechanics. And one of the children of that train of thought turned out to be entanglement, which was how what happens in one spot could instantaneously affect something that happened somewhere else. And he called it spooky action at a distance. He was not willing to go there either. Now you see, physicists are humans like anybody else. We look out and I see all of my students here in the classroom. It's really hard to believe, even conceive of the fact that there might be another version of us. If there was another version of us, where would it be? Why wouldn't it bump into us? You see the problems that are raised? And if energy equals mass times the speed of light squared, then all of these versions of us would consume a huge amount of energy because energy is equal to mass times the speed of light squared. An infinite number of us, it's an infinite number of masses. This is just too complicated. So what did Einstein do? He pulled out an ad hoc solution. Only one version matters. I'm sitting here, my version matters. You got in the rocket ship, it's your fault. <laughs> do you get the idea? Do you realize that nothing's been settled? This should convince you, if nothing else, this should convince you that there are controversies. There are things that physicists aren't even willing to think about. Now, there are some physicists who are talking about this. In the most recent issue of New Science magazine, New Scientist magazine, I'm sorry, New Scientist magazine, there's an empirical discovery that's been sought after for a long time among people who were trying to listen for gravity waves. They haven't found any gravity waves, but they were trying to find them. They were trying to listen for gravity waves with these detectors, but they found a background noise that was very disturbing. And they were saying it must be due to something, temperature fluctuations and the, con the contraptions that they were using or something. But no matter how much they controlled everything, they couldn't get it to go away, this background noise. 
Well, it so turned out that this background noise was exactly what was predicted by some physicists who were arguing that all of reality that we have, that we see in front of us, is a version of a hologram. It's not solid at all. It's a hologram in which all that we see is in phase with us at any particular moment. And all that we don't see is simply out of phase. And this background radiation, believe me, is causing some controversy. They're trying to say, because what they're saying is at the fundamental smallest part, the smallest aspect of, of, of space-time, it's beginning to break apart like grains, like grains of sand, meaning space-time doesn't seem to be smooth. It's breaking apart at, these, at this micro level, what they call at the Planck scale. That's really small. Planck's scale is way smaller than atoms and particles and things like that. And they're trying to refine their instruments to be able to detect this. But if it is true that all that we see in front of us is nothing more than a hologram, believe me, this is a controversial area of physics. Believe me, physicists are fighting about this. Believe me. Physicists are not settled on this. And if you propose that we're all living in a hologram to some physicists, they'll throw you right out. They say this is ridiculous. One physicist said all of this stuff about probabilistic quantum mechanics saying they're all probability waves instead of real things isn't true. And he stubbed his toe on a rock or something. And he said, I felt that. That's not a probability. We're solid. We're real. means that reality as we understand it is very deceptive. We don't know anything. We're just babes in the woods, learning things. And even special relativity can be questioned. The basic assumptions of it can be questioned. Meaning, the fabric of the universe is not at all settled. And we don't even know if there's alternate realities. It's really weird. And by the way, the same argument can be made with regard to mass in, in special relativity that I just did with regard to time, and also distance. I mean, it's really odd. Things that are going very fast increase in mass, right? But if everything's relative, then as long as there's anything in the universe that's going really fast, everything else should have nearly infinite mass. It's a lot of stuff just doesn't make sense. We're discovering. Go ahead. Um, have there been um, attempts to try to link uh, dark matter with... Um Dark matter is another one of those great controversies that's going on right now. And that means that there might be matter that doesn't act like normal matter. And they're wondering if there's a lot of it out there. And they're trying to find it. Some theories seem to suggest it is. Some observations seem to suggest that maybe it does exist. But this is just an example of the types of questions that people are, are raising. And dark matter is actually one of the big questions that physicists are concerned about, but in terms of fundamental reality, it may actually turn out to be one of the smaller questions, because we don't even know what reality is anymore. So you see, you won't find in a physics class people questioning special relativity the way I just questioned it. And if you raise this to a physicist, well, an open-minded physicist would say that is sort of interesting, sort of odd, but most physicists will just dismiss it out of hand. 
wait 20 or 30 years, that same question may not be dismissed so easily. If reality is a hologram, then in fact you could have many versions because many holograms can coexist within the same space depending on your perspective. Essentially, you could get an infinite number of versions of us. But I digress. The reality is what Lee Smolin is actually talking about is how this is a very pregnant time for science, meaning at this time, we see a lot of our current theories falling apart. That's why he calls this a revolutionary time. A lot of our current theories simply aren't working. Let's go to page five and let's look at some of the problems that he says must be, must be dealt with. This is one of the great unsolved problems in theoretical physics. Problem one, combine general relativity and quantum theory into a single theory that can claim to be the complete theory of nature. This is the problem of quantum gravity. By the way, this is the fundamental problem that Lee Smolin has been working on for much of his professional life. To combine quantum theory with general relativity. General relativity deals with large, the large, the macro, the theory of gravity, which is basically ignored by quantum theories. Basically, quantum theory is something that occurs at the very micro level, and then they have a line and say everything bigger than this deals with classical physics or relativistic physics, and they just don't mix. I was having a conversation with uh, Hans-Peter Dorr, former head of the Max Planck Institute. Uh, we were on a, uh, on a panel together at a colloquium in uh, Lucerne, and we were talking about some of the problems of quantum mechanics and how it relates to the classical world. And basically, I was agreeing with the statement that Roger Penrose had made earlier, that we simply can't go on with this dichotomy that the quantum is small and the classical world is big and the two are in a state of divorce. They just Because everything that's in the large world is based on the quantum, so you, it, it must be that the, mark, that the macro world has fundamental capabilities and properties of the quantum world. You just simply can't say there's a dividing line. And then we started to talk about what that would actually mean. And we got into some ideas relating to Planck lengths, very small lengths, and how things would be connected in, 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 in a different way but than, than what was currently accepted. But one of the things that he said that was so powerful is that it's clear that scientists don't understand quantum mechanics. And once they accept that they don't understand quantum mechanics, they have to accept that they don't understand the classical large world either. The classical world is based on the quantum mechanical world. There's really a lack of understanding, a total opposite of the way you're taught in school. Let's go to the problem number two. This goes to eight, page eight. This whole issue goes under the name of foundational problems of quantum mechanics. It's the second great problem of contemporary physics, which is problem number two. Resolve the problems in the foundations of quantum mechanics, either by making sense of the theory as it stands or by inventing a new theory. That does not make sense. Several ways to do this. Let's go over the three ways. So basically he's saying we either have to make sense of the current theory, which doesn't make sense, or we have to come up with a new theory. So there are three ways we can do it. 
we can provide a sensible language for the theory, one that resolves all puzzles like ones just mentioned and incorporates the division of the world into systems and observer as an essential feature of the theory. So coming up with a new language that resolves all these puzzles, meaning a new way to talk about them, a new way to interpret them. Secondly, well, we can find a new interpretation of the theory, a new way of reading the equations that is realist to the measurement and observation so that the measurement and observation play no role in the description of fundamental reality. So a new interpretation of an old theory. Or we can invent a completely new theory, one that gives a deeper understanding of the nature that quantum mechanics, a deeper theory of the nature than quantum mechanics actually does. So basically, from this problem, what can you get? One of the solutions that they're facing is going back to the drawing board. Meaning, what you can see here is they're asking us, do we need to go back to the drawing board? What should that tell you? What does that tell you? You probably do. What's that? That you probably do. That you probably do? There's the question that whether or not you need to do something so fundamental, then you probably do need to do it. That's a good way of That's a good way of putting. If there's a if you're actually talking about the probability of maybe having to come up with a brand new theory, that must mean that they're deeply troubled, doesn't it? That the, maybe they really do need it. What does it tell you about their real state of that their real state of certainty? There isn't one. There isn't one. They really have some deep problems. Can you imagine how exciting it would be to be told by a physicist? We're really screwed up. We don't know what's going on. And instead, what you're told is, here are the laws of physics. Wouldn't you rather be told, we're really screwed up, we don't know what's going on? It's like a movie. The plot's just beginning. You have to find out. Well, let's find out what's going on. Instead, you're told, here are the laws of physics. So, which person you talk to will tell you which laws they particularly like. Boy, it was a big mistake. Any Hollywood producer would tell you, if you really want people's attention, tell them we're really screwed up when we don't know what's going on. (laughs) The last thing you want to go when you go to a movie is, we know the plot, here it is, now you can watch the movie. (laughs) Who would watch such a movie? Okay, let's go to point number three on page 11. The third great problem. Determine whether or not the various particles and forces can be unified in a theory that explains them all as manifestations of a single fundamental energy, uh, f- fundamental entity. Let us call this problem the unification of the particles and forces to distinguish it from the unification of laws, the unification we discussed earlier. Hmm. That means they've got a bunch of particles out there and they've got a bunch of forces. What is this problem telling you? They have these lists of particles and forces, but they can't quite figure out how they fit together. That's exactly right. Uh, What were you taught in school? That there are particles and there are forces, and here are the rules that they use to behave. What are we now told? That it could possibly go that way. 
but they don't know. But there but, could possibly be particles, and maybe there are forces, and maybe they're the same thing. That's exactly they right. They don't exist. They're telling you fundamentally they don't have a theory that explains them all, that puts it all together. Let's go to number four, problem 13, I'm at page 13. Our fourth big problem. To explain how the values of the free constants in the standard model of particle physics are chosen in nature. It is devoutly hoped that a true unified theory of the particles and forces will give a unique answer to this question. What is he talking about here? What do you mean, the values of the free constants? Well, he talks later about like supersymmetry and the equations they do for mm-hmm. it. And um, what happens is when they um, have like a smaller number of constants, they tend to get like these in- infinite uh, numbers back. And so they just keep... Uh, raising the constants to a point where they can get numbers back. Yeah. Or, um, so that covers, uh, you know, their... Uh, yeah, pretty much. And they get covered covers their what? Their ass. Yeah, their ass. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they, uh, then they can say that they got results even if they just, you know, kind of made up these huge numbers. Okay, this is really great. It's true. You see, these theories that are being developed by physicists only work if they have numbers that sort of make them work. And they develop these constants. These constants. And are there many of them? There are tons of them. So there's two questions. Why are these constants existing in the first place? These numbers that you have to multiply everything by or or use it in some way in order for all the other measurements to work. Why are there so many of them? And B, why are they the particular numbers, why are they the particular values that they have? Okay, so Planck's constant, it's this number. Well, Planck must be congratulated for figuring out there there was such a constant and for us to have a constant. But, and it's true, sort of things all work out if you have the number at that value. But A, why is that constant existing in the first place and why is it that value? There are a whole bunch of constants, a whole bunch of them. And all of our understanding of the universe depends on these things. And this is what the question is. Why are they, where are these constants coming from and why are they the particular values that they are? What are some constants that you've heard of? Planck's constant. If that changed even a little bit, we would have a universe that's much different from what we are. Famous constants, cosmological constant, that had a lot of controversy. Einstein both accepted and rejected it in his life. Fascinating constants. Well, we'll come back to constants. I'll bring you, there's a whole nice book of the constants of nature that you can get in the bookshop these days where a mathematician goes through all the constants and explains all those constants. A whole bunch of them. It's not all the constants, but a whole bunch of them. Enough to fill the book. The question you should ask is, why are all those constants running around and why are they having those values? No physicist has answered that. But they're needed in order for the theories to work. Hmm. Doesn't it sort of begin to sound like reality is more like a gizmo, a contraption? And you sort of can't figure out the contraption, but you know that this gear here has to be exactly that distance from that gear in order for everything to work? Well, okay. It's got to be exactly that distance. That distance then becomes a constant. Reality depends on that gear and this gear being this far apart. 
So it's a constant because it's always measured that way. But don't you want to step back and say, well, who put those gears there in the first place? <laughs> Do you get the idea? But instead of doing that, people just get painted a pretty color and put something on it and say, well, look, it looks pretty now and it works. So That's very interesting. Yeah. Exactly right. You know that there's so many theories that you're taught that are normal that people just simply don't accept? A lot of people don't accept? Well, we'll get to some of them in the class. But let's first go over to page 16, his fifth problem. Now, this is the question that was raised earlier. Dark matter. The cosmological mysteries make up the fifth great problem. Explain dark matter and dark energy. Or, if they don't exist, determine how and why gravity is modified on such large scales. More generally, explain why the constants of the standard model of cosmology, including the dark energy, have the values they do. Well, the problem is that when you make measurements out there in the world, in the universe, things just don't exist or operate the way they're supposed to exist. And so new ideas, new theories come up, such as there's got to be more matter out there than we see, which is where this dark matter came from. So these ideas, these ideas with regard to dark matter are pointed due to some of the other basic questions that physicists are trying to raise. What they're really saying is those observations that we make don't make sense. The universe, the galaxy shouldn't be spinning the way it's spinning. There's got to be other matter out there that's causing these stars in the outer parts of the galaxy to be moving faster than they should be moving. There's got to be something going on out there. Um, so, they come up with ideas like this idea of dark matter. Now, that's okay for them to do that. But what that should really tell you is they don't have the foggiest idea of what's going on in so many areas. And they're grasping at new ideas and then spending huge amounts of time and energy trying to verify those ideas. Now, this book is fundamentally about the rise and fall of string theory. Let's talk in broad stroke measures. What is Lee Smolin saying about string theory? You tell me. Uh, What's the basic bottom line? Go ahead. Um, it, well, it's I'm a theory, but it can't be um, experimentally uh, proven, which is kind of... Talk like, about that. Well, I mean, we were always taught in school that um, in order for something to be like scientifically proven, it has to be um, ex um, experimentally uh, demonstrated. But what's happening in string theory is they're assuming something and then just coming up with assumptions based on that assumption. Yeah, that's a good thing. Uh, Stephen Hawking has commented about this with regard to string theory as well. Say some more about this. Assumptions based on assumptions. And what is this thing about experimentation? What is what is say more about that? What is he actually getting at? Well, everything up until this point, up until string theory, is something that we could almost, in essence, get our hands on. Something that we could understand and and test and prove and do it every single time over and be you know able to reproduce with you know a certain amount of precision and accuracy the same results. But with string theory, they're talking about creating and wrapping up new dimensions that we can't find 
that are either too small or were too small to see them, and we can't test for them, but it, as long as we add that 11th dimension or the 9th dimension, we can plug it into a giant calculator and then get a result. Um, so, in essence, we are the ones that are, are faulty, and we are not the ones that can actually comprehend this string theory, this you know, tell-all answer that unifies everything. But hopefully at some point we will. And so they're banking on future knowledge, being able to, to uh, verify their theory, while at this point they can't. That's, that's a pretty good synopsis of what's going on. What is string theory? Um, that was actually one of the hardest things I could really come up with. He, he explained it and then dived into what was wrong with it. Um, it basically isn't just that every single particle are, is, there's a string that's strained between oh, No, no, no. More basic than that. What is string theory more basic? Like you're trying to explain it to a middle schooler. Let's not go in the Brian Green direction where you're actually trying to describe the strings. Okay. Let's go in the... A little kid comes up to you and says, what is string theory? Now, not without getting into any details. What would it be? Is it just the theory that unifies quantum mechanics and general relativity? Well, it's got real problems with general relativity. Um, what do some other people think? It's a string. It's a theory that supposedly is trying to unify things. But what is what is what is string theory? But let's let's get some other people saying what. If you were trying to explain it to a middle schooler, or even a, uh, someone in elementary school, someone comes up to you, what is string theory? What would you say? Go ahead. Um, everything is made out of tiny strings that vibrate. That's a little bit too advanced. Uh, you're getting into high school at that point. Things have to vibrate. What is string theory really basically? It's unifying really, really big things, really, really small things that previously could not be unified by other theories. All right. Well, does that mean you're talking about merging the Powerpuff Girls with Pokemons? What are you talking about in terms of unifying? You're talking to young kids now. Yeah, I don't want to use, like, particle physics. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. What is string theory? They just want to know what's happening. What is string theory? Without getting into any details. A new understanding of the world? Yeah, that's pretty good. It's an understanding of the world. What else? You got three minutes left. How about I push it a little bit? If you were to look at string theory, what would you see? If you opened a book of string theory, what would you see? Nothing. No, no, no. You'd see. There are a lot of people who have published on string theory. What would you see if you opened there? You would not see nothing. There's ink on the pages. What would you see? Equations. What was that? Equations. Equations. It's a mathematical theory. 
a mathematical theory. So fundamentally, it's a mathematical theory that explains everything. The other thing you might tell the middle schooler is it's really complicated. And you might say that people have worked like their whole professional lives on developing this theory. So it's mathematical. That tells them that you know, the middle schoolers understand math. It's mathematical. It's really complicated. They understand it's complicated. And that people have worked on it their whole professional lives, like 20 years, 15 years, 10 years. Okay, they did a whole thing. I understand. They understand, you know, their parents working their whole lives on some big project. And then you'd have to tell them that it is a theory that tries to explain the world and it has not succeeded in predicting a single thing. That's what you'd have to tell them. A theory that is trying to explain the world but has not succeeded in predicting a single thing. Meaning, if you have a theory, your theory should say, based on this theory, certain things should occur. Let's go see. And if those things occur as predicted by the theory, that's evidence that supports the theory. Because the theory says, not only does, not only do you explain current phenomena that you see, but it gives us a little leverage into questions we weren't even thinking about and says there should be some phenomena that occur because of the way we think and let's test for those phenomena and all that comes out of string theory and that doesn't exist there's a new collider in Europe called the Haldron Collider and one of the things that string theorists have been looking for is the God particle the special particles under very high energies that some string theorists have been saying this will be one of those things and they're hoping to find it but as of today there's nothing there there with string theory then you can say well how long have these people been working on it a long time and is there one version of it no there's actually many versions of string theory there's no one single version. There's a lot of people coming up with all types of different aspects of it. Well, then you say, well, why should we care? That's what we talk about on Thursday. Why should we care? Here you have a theory that's totally unproven, that hasn't found a single thing to predict. And that would be okay, right? I mean, people can spend their whole lives doing something that doesn't turn out to be okay. But what we're going to talk about on Thursday is that this theory, which hasn't proven anything, hasn't succeeded in predicting anything, isn't even codified into a single theory. It's very highly complicated. People have spent their entire life working on it. Perhaps a whole generation of scientists have spent their lives working on it has to date nothing to show for it other than a theory, meaning a story. It's a mathematical story, very complicated, but it may not relate to reality. Then you can say, well, so what? They wasted their lives doing it, so what? The question is, 
what resources has this group occupied for the last 15 years? What if somebody had a theory that they were pushing? And it turned out that theory was not only wrong, but was soaking up nearly all the resources for all competing theories. So they were the only show in town. This has happened before. Newtonian physics, it was the only show in town for a very, very long time. And if you questioned it, that was the end. And Einstein bludgeoned his way in. And then you had the emergence of some competing schools, the quantum mechanics school, the relativistic school. But basically what happened is, very recently, it's just string theory school. And so one of the things you want to say is, how dominant is it? And are they stopping us from understanding some of these bigger questions? So that's what we're going to be covering on Thursday. And that's the reason we're fundamentally reading Lee Smolin's book. You need to understand the sociology of science. The sociology of science reveals to you that what you're taught at the university level is very often all screwed up. And if you could time warp yourself into a future 40 years from now, you'd find out that most of the stuff you were taught was bogus. What you need to learn as students is not facts. What you need to learn as students is how to question the facts you're given. And what we'll cover on Thursday is how pervasive that rigidity in thought in the academia in all areas actually is. And how students, when you come out of this course, if there's anything that's to be gotten out of this course and anything to be gotten out of science fiction is a lust for the battle, not a desire for more facts, but a lust for the battle. So, make sure you've read part four. It's not a long part, but it's part four calling Learning from Experience. It starts with chapter 16, How Do You Fight Sociology? Make sure you start and know that section really well by Thursday. Then we'll get right into it. And then right after that, we'll get into our very first science fiction novel with this perspective in mind. And then we, as we cover each novel, you'll realize how real these ideas actually are. Okay, great. See you on Thursday.